So get this. The other day I was sitting at home. I got home from work, catching up. How's your day? How's your day? Uh, what'd you do today? And I said, oh, I started working on that message. And she said, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. You get to teach, right? And I said, yeah, what are you going to teach on again? She said, I'm, I get to talk about science. And she dropped her shoulders and said, oh, is it going to be boring? <laughs> that's my supportive wife there. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, I was a little defeated in that moment. But uh, no, I know that I'm not in a science classroom and I'm not in a science setting. And so I envision that some of you uh, are like me. You're intrigued by talking about this topic uh, in church, talking about the topic of science. And then some of you are like my wife um, who would say, those aren't molecules, they're nerdy balls. That's what she tells me. So we'll talk about nerdy balls later and molecules and stuff. So let's jump right into this. Science is a big deal, right? Science is a big deal. I mean, it affects every uh, aspect of our life. We have new technologies. We have uh, things are getting smaller. Electronics are getting smaller and allows things to advance in medical research. We see all these great new things. Medical research is advancing. We're seeing further down into the cell than we've ever seen before. We're seeing further out into space than we've ever seen before. And it's just absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible, yeah? It's awesome. So when we talk about science, though, there's this tension, like Scott said, there's this tension between faith and reason. But I think science points us to God. I mean, and truth be told, we could have a number of scientists stand up here. We'd have physicists, cosmologists, astronomers stand up here and tell you and show you evidence that points to God. As a matter of fact, there's one famous astronomer, physicist, mathematician that once said this. Put this quote up there, Carlos. It says, no astronomer can be an atheist. No astronomer can be an atheist. Well, I would actually say the same thing about biochemists. No biochemist can be an atheist, but um, we see that thing. We see that trend still happening. And so that's my question is, why, why, what's the difference there? Why is it that I can study biochemistry, I learn biochemistry, and it points me to God, it points me to Jesus, but somebody else reads it, learns it, studies it, and they're happy to give randomness or uh, chance or the laws of nature the credit for the complexities of life. And this happens all the time. We see physicists and all kinds of different scholars talking. They talk about the miraculous uh, nature of life, and then they, well, it's just the laws of nature. That's how it goes. And so I think this is where we, this is where we got to start today, is talking about um, this disconnect. But I think the disconnect starts at a misconception of faith. And the sci- it's almost like scientists have a fear of faith, but I think the fear of faith is based on maybe um, a backwards definition of what faith is. And so this is where I think we need to start today. And so, like Scott said earlier, people say faith or reason. You've got to choose one, right? You can't choose both. You've got to choose God or science, faith or reason. Richard Dawkins once said, let's throw this up on the screen, Carlos. Richard Dawkins, he's a famous uh, scientist, smart guy. He's a, a well-known mouthpiece for atheism. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the, ex- the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. So that's Dawkins. And Dawkins is not the only one saying that. Many other people would also say that. But it's not just science that has the wrong, uh, that, that's, that's kind of in the wrong here. I think the church also uh, has a little bit to blame. The church is actually portrayed as being anti-science. And, um, and why is that, you say? Well, I think what happens is the church sees some of these things in science, and we believe that, that science undermines God or it undermines biblical authority. And uh, instead of taking a moment to evaluate the evidence and looking, hey, does this evidence point us to God? We just kind of back off. Oh, we don't, we don't know what that means. We don't understand it. And so we just think that science undermines biblical authority. And so I think those are the two misconceptions. Maybe there's maybe a misconception of faith uh, a little bit on, on, on both sides. And so that's what we want to talk about today. And, um, you know, I was reading a book 
couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, and in, in talking um, about the church being anti-science, there was this book, it's called You Lost Me, and uh, it was research composed by the Barna Group, and uh, there's a guy in here that they talk, he was a scientist, and they talked to him, and I said one of the uh, trends that they found was the church, the reason why young Christians are leaving the church is because they believe the church is anti-science, and this is a quote from Mike in the book, it says, to be honest, I think that learning about science was the straw that broke the camel's back. I knew from church that I couldn't believe in both science and God. So that was it. I didn't believe in God anymore. So I think, that, um, I think that's very sad, but it still brings me back to the question, why is it that myself, uh, our, our executive pastor, John Collin, he's educated and practiced chemistry for a number of years before he came on staff at Southbridge. Why is it the two of us, millions of other people, can study science and we see the hand of God in that and other people, millions of other people, don't see the hand of God uh, in science. And I've thought about this. I've asked the Lord, Lord, why is it that I can see this? It's so blaringly, blatantly obvious to me. And the only answer that I can come with, it's got to be God's grace. It's got to be God's grace. Just as he pursued me, just as he uh, revealed himself to me. And because of that, I have salvation. Because of that, I was rescued out of my sin. I think God has allowed me to learn these things, allowed me to learn science, and allowed me to see his hand at work in them. But I don't think that myself or John or the other scientist. Uh, that learn this stuff, we're not the privileged ones. The Bible doesn't say that those who study science, God will reveal himself to you. No, the Bible's actually pretty clear. The whole chapter of Psalms talks about the Lord will reveal himself to everyone in nature. And I love this verse. We'll put this up on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. It says, What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. I love that. God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so the Bible is very clear that God reveals himself to everyone. And so to me, that says, okay, the ball's in our court now. God's revealed himself to us. So the question is, what are we going to do with that information? Now, we can let pride stand in the way, or we can take a position of humility and stand back and say, wow, what an amazing God we worship. How awesome is he that he created this? He designed this. But we can also take the opposite position. Let's look at Isaiah 29, verse 16 together. When I read this, it it took me back a little bit. It says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed... Uh, or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And that's what we were just talking about. People do this all the time. We see the miraculous things happening in science, and we stand back and say, oh, that wasn't God. It was a random chance. It just happened over six billion years. I was telling somebody the other day, I think we live in a very privileged time. We live in, a, in, a, in an awesome time, like I said, where science is advancing all the time. And, you know, we don't have Jesus here to walk on water in front of us. He's not here turning water into wine. We don't see him raising people from the dead. But we live in a time where God is allowing science to progress at such an amazing rate that we are seeing miracles happen in front of our face. And when I see these things, I feel like it's God pointing, hello, do you all see this? Look how awesome I am. I feel like that's what he's saying, but, but we still miss it. And it's sad, but we see the same trend in scripture. John chapter 12, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. So you have to ask yourself, well, what signs, what signs is he talking about? Well, if you go to the beginning of chapter 12, John talks about these signs. But I think the big one that caught my attention was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and people still don't believe him. 
I think if a guy comes to me and says, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'll say, okay, that's neat for you. But if he says, I'm the Messiah, and then I see him raise somebody from the dead, he's got my attention now, and I'm going to start maybe putting some weight into what he says and listening to what he says. And science does the same thing for me. It puts weight on the evidence. It continues to pile up and pile up and pile up. So much so, so much that I would say the evidence, it's so compelling. Uh, it's such a nail in the coffin, such a slam dunk. It's so logical that I think the initial step of faith, that initial trusting in Jesus, to me, it almost seems faithless. Now, before I'm remembered as the guy that stood up in front of church and said that belief in God is faithless, I'll clarify myself. I'm being a little dramatic with the term faithless, just to drive home the point that the evidence is so compelling that a belief in God is so logical. Faith is reason. But I think this is where we have to get to, is that there is this misconception between faith and reason. If you remember the quote earlier from Richard Dawkins, talked about it was uh, the, the need to evade evidence and not have to think. That's what he thinks faith is. People tell you that faith versus reason is the logic. But does that even make sense? I mean, what is that based on? So I think that's what we need to talk about. So let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 for a minute. And let's see what the Bible says about faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so when I read this, I see two different aspects of faith. There's that very first aspect. It says, now faith, you just leave this up for a while, Carlos. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. Faith is confidence. Faith is confidence. That sounds like kind of the opposite maybe of what we think about sometimes, right? Like Scott said in his prayer earlier, some people think faith is blind leaping. Richard Dawkins says faith is evading the need to think and evaluate the evidence, but faith is confidence. So I would ask you, well, what is confidence in regards to faith? I think confidence is knowledge. Confidence is knowledge. Faith is confidence. Confidence is knowledge. And knowledge comes from where? Knowledge comes from the revelation of God that we talked about in Romans chapter 1. See, God reveals himself to us. Plain and clear, God reveals himself to us, and then we have to decide what we want to do with that information. So for me, God revealed himself to me in the scriptures. God reveals himself to me in science. And because of that, I can confidently stand in front of you all today and tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the creator of the universe. And I can say that with confidence. So confidence and faith sometimes, we think it doesn't go together, but Hebrews tells us that it goes together. The second part of the verse, it says... Faith is also um, assurance about what we do not see. Now, I think this is important, so I don't want to gloss over it. So we're going to talk about this for a minute. What is assurance about what we do not see? So we do not see. Obviously, there is some unknown aspects to faith. Yeah, there's some unknown aspects to faith, but that doesn't mean that it's anti-knowledge or anti-logic or anti-reason. But there is an unknown aspect of it. And God tells us that we have an assurance about the things that we don't see. And what is that assurance? That assurance is God's word. So I love the way that, the way that God works is he gives us evidence to show that he exists. And then we take that initial step of faith. And now we're in a relationship with the Lord. Now that we're in a relationship with the Lord, this is the aspect of faith that we see in the second part of this verse. And this is the harder part. This is the harder part of faith. In my testimony, it is. But he still gives us assurance. And if you read the rest of chapter, uh, chapter 11 in Hebrews, there's tons of examples of faith. People that only had God's evidence as evidence. 
If we read chapter, uh, chapter 4, it says, By faith, Abel brought, uh, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was uh, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. Verse 7, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And you can, offer, you can enter your own story into there. By faith, Josh and Steph are going to Michigan to plant a church. By faith, Bill and Judy Grimmie are uprooting their lives and moving to Panama to help build an orphanage. By faith, Jad and Aaron Walters have to trust in God's plan for their life because the thought of raising a special needs son is unbelievably overwhelming, unbelievably exhausting. So I think this is my point. When I'm in the hospital again with my son or if he has another seizure, I don't understand why that happens. And I'm not justifying these feelings, but to be honest with you, I've been angry with God. I've been bitter with God. I've questioned God. I get jealous when I see other, parent, other kids talking to their parents and think, why can't I talk to my son? Why does he have to be so frustrated and he can't tell me what he wants? But in that mixed bag of emotions, I, don't, I can't remember a time ever losing my faith. And the reason why I can't lose my faith is because of my logic, because of my confidence that we see in the first part of this verse. Faith is confidence. So my testimony, my logic, my brain says, okay, Lord, because of what you've revealed to me in scriptures, because of what I've seen in science, my logic won't let me believe that you're not there. You have to be there. Now, the second part, I'm in this aspect of faith that I'm I'm really struggling with. I have a hard time understanding what it is that you're doing and what your plan is. But I have to trust in him. And we have assurance. It tells us we have assurance for things that we do not see. And his assurance, again, in his word. So I guess my point is that if you're a believer and you're in a relationship with the Lord, I feel like sometimes people get into this relationship and when things get going, uh, things get going not the way they had planned, they just back out. Oh, no, God wouldn't do that to me. God's not, God doesn't work that way. But I would urge you to not forget where that confidence comes from. Why did you take that initial step of faith in the first place? Did you, did you say, yes, I want to trust in you, Jesus, because some guy stood up in front of church and told you you needed to, and you thought to yourself, mm, he seems like a nice guy. I hope you used your logic, your brain that God gave you, the revelation of God and your knowledge to make the most important decision of your life. And if you always remember that confidence in your faith, you'll never lose faith in God, even in the hard times, even when you're struggling. I think that faith rests on a bedrock of knowledge. And I think this relationship between faith and knowledge was even important to the, to the apostles. If we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. Pull up John, 1 John 1, 11. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So I would say this, God likes to demonstrate that he is real, that he is here in the physical world and that is not opposed to faith. 
And so to the atheist that says, I have to choose faith or reason, I would say that your, your statement there, your logic doesn't make any sense. I would say that your uh, statement is based on a false definition that you don't understand what faith is. And I would go as far as to say that, hey, the Bible actually agrees with some of you. The Bible actually uh, encourages us to make informed decisions. The Bible actually encourages knowledge. The Bible actually encourages pursuit of truth. So why are you telling me this? Because it doesn't make any sense. And to the church that thinks that we have to be anti-science because it undermines biblical authority, I would just say, read the scriptures. The Bible is pro-knowledge, and the Bible also tells us that God is going to reveal himself in his creation. So we have to trust that God will reveal himself in his creation, just like he says. I don't think God's ever broken a promise. So we trust that he will reveal himself, and then we pray for those people that see that take a stance of humility and stand back in awe of the creator. So science and truth, both are in pursuit, or science and religion, I mean, are both in pursuit of the truth, but I think they're in pursuit of different aspects of it. All right, the light bulb gives off light, fills the room with light because electricity, electrons are running through the filament, heating it up, and it gives off light. Or the light bulb gives off light because Jad turned the light switch on. I don't think we have to choose between the two. In fact, if we are to understand the mysterious event of the light bulb being on, giving off light, we need both forms of explanation. And similarly, I would say that science helps us understand how the world works, and religion helps us know that there is meaning, that there is purpose, that there is something being fulfilled in the unfolding history of events. So I say science and religion both spring from our desire to understand and to explore. So I would encourage us to to embrace insights from both sides. So there's my soapbox about science and faith, science and faith. Now, I talked earlier about how awesome uh, God is and how miraculous things are in science. Well, if I were you, I would be thinking to myself, show us the miracles. Let's get to the miracles. Let's see the miracles. So that's what I'm going to do now. I want to change gears. I want to forge ahead and jump to another part, uh, the more science-y, as my wife would call it, nerdy part of this talk. Nerd balls. Yeah, that's right. Nerdy balls. Molecules. And uh, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 16. And I hope that after we read this and after we look at uh, some things and we kind of dive into the cell and look at things, I hope you have a greater appreciation, one, for this verse, and two, for our Creator. Let's read this together. Psalm uh, 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now as a biochemist, I read this and I think, obviously David's not throwing out scientific terms here, but man, from a poetic standpoint, He nailed it. I mean, some people would actually uh, call this one of the greatest passages in literature on human conception and birth. I'm just amazed. I see so many different layers to it that jump out at me and strike me. And another thing that amazes me is that for my research and for my understanding, the uh, science of the anatomy was quite unknown to David. He didn't have an x-ray machine to peer uh, into the human body and look at the nerves and the blood vessels and the organs and all that kind of stuff. But he had seen enough of the work to stir up his admiration. He had seen enough of the worker to spring forth in praise. If you look at verse 14, 
for I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And David's really good at this. He's really good at bragging on God and making a big deal about it and then turn around and worshiping. Let's look at that. Psalm chapter uh, 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? So David's saying, all right, God, you are infinitely big, and you measure the span of the universe in the palm of your hand. So what is man that you are mindful of him? So I say we use science to answer David's question. Let's answer David's question for God. What is man that you were mindful of? Let's think to human body. Let's think about the human body. It starts, we all started as one cell. That one, spell, that one cell splits and becomes two. The two become four. The four become eight. And just after 40-some doublings, you have 100 trillion cells. And you're ready to spring forth as a human being. Every one of those cells knows exactly what to do and how to do it, how to nurture you and how to maintain you from your moment of conception into your very last breath. Amazing, yeah? Some people would say the cell is like a complex chemical refinery. Some people say it's like a bustling city. And it, it's kind of like both of those things, but it's, but it's neither, it's extremely complex. I mean, even, even the most basic type of cell, a yeast cell, doesn't even compare to the human cell. To make a yeast cell, you would need to take all the components of a Boeing 777 jetliner, miniaturize them, fit them into a sphere that's five microns across. That's two ten thousandths of an inch, 0.0002 inches. Take all those parts, miniaturize them, fit it into that sphere, and then persuade that sphere to reproduce. Figure it out. And that's, that's nothing compared to humans. Human cells are far more complicated, far more fascinating, because they actually interact with one another. They're vastly more fascinating. You have billions of cells that commit suicide every day on purpose. They commit suicide, and you have billions of other cells cleaning up the mess. Like I said earlier, some people say that it's a a chemical refinery. Some people say that it's a bustling city. And it's kind of both of those things and neither. It's like a chemical refinery in the fact that it is uh, committed to chemical activity on a grand scale. And it's kind of like a bustling city in the fact that there's lots of communication, lots of interactions. And it seems random, but there's clearly a system to it. But it's neither one of those things because it's much more nightmarish of a factory or city than you've ever seen. To begin with... There is no up or down in a cell. Gravity is meaningless on a cellular scale. And there is not an atom's width of space that is unused. There is literally activity everywhere. There is activity everywhere. So let's scale this up so that we can step inside the cell and understand. So if you're, um, let's scale a carbon atom up to about the size of a pea. So if I'm a carbon atom, we got it the size of a pea. That means the inside of a cell would be about a half of a mile in diameter. So you're inside the cell. A lot of people call uh, the cellular like a molecular storm. So it's just crazy chaos in there. 
things are whizzing about, some the size of basketballs, some the size of cars. They're whizzing by you literally about as fast as a bullet. And there wouldn't be a place that you could stand without getting pummeled and without getting knocked into probably over a thousand times a second. Even for its full-time occupants, the cell is a hazardous place. On average, a DNA molecule gets uh, attacked or damaged once every 8.4 seconds. Once every 8.4 seconds, that's 10,000 times a day. And the cell has to swiftly stitch that wound up and fix it if the cell is not to die prematurely. It has happened right now. And it happened again. And your body's constantly fixing these things and making new molecules going and going and going. So amidst the chaos, you continue to look around and you notice there's all these busy workers. Has everybody ever heard of a protein? And I'm talking about protein that you eat. But proteins are the little the machines inside your cells that do all the work. You have thousands and thousands and thousands of proteins. And when you look around, they look like factory workers doing all kinds of stuff. You have some proteins over here, over here uh, running all over the place, performing up to 1,000 tasks a second. You have some proteins that are busy building and rebuilding other molecules. You have some proteins that are shuttling a bag of trash outside the cell. You have other proteins shuttling stuff into the cell that's useful for the cell. You have other proteins that are hall monitors that actually scour the cell and look for damaged proteins. And when they see that protein, they tag it. And then that protein gets taken to another structure of the cell. The, uh, the, uh, the protein gets stripped down of its component parts, and it's used to make new proteins. So your cells even recycle. It's amazing. It's like they know what to do. There's a huge complex framework of girders inside the cell that gives the cell its shape. It's made by a bunch of, uh, they look like fibers almost, but it's made by a bunch of different proteins that come together. And there's not an atom's width of space that's unused. Are you impressed with yourself yet? And this is just like literally scratching, scratching the tiniest surface. But I think to really appreciate what we're talking about, you have to appreciate the scale that we're talking about here. When we talk about DNA and proteins, we have to, we have to talk about what's called a nanometer. Has anybody ever heard of nanotechnology? A nanometer. That is a nanometer. Ten, that's scientific notation on the 10 to the minus ninth meters. That's 0.0000000001 meters. That's small. So if you were to pull a piece of hair out of your hair, or you can use your neighbor's hair, Pull a piece of hair out, it's 0.1 millimeters. You'd have to slice that thing up in diameter 100,000 times to reach a nanometer. 100,000 times. Let's watch this video. Carla, show this video. Let's watch a video, and uh, it'll help us appreciate this scale. The almost inconceivable nano world conceivable. The naked eye can see the diameter of a human hair. That's one tenth of a millimeter. Or 100,000 nanometers. To understand the small, we're going to scale it up to skyscraper proportions. And return to our human hair and blow it up to the size of the Empire State Building. A typical human cell, say a red blood cell, would rise to the 10th floor. A bacteria cell, the third floor. Working down our scale, a run-of-the-mill protein molecule would be the same height as a small dog, about a foot and a half. And a nanometer, on our Empire State scale, it's less than a quarter of an inch. 
That's about the size of five microscopic atoms placed end to end. This is the scale where much of what we'll be talking about is taking place. That is small, right? So your hair is the diameter of the Empire State Building, and we're looking at things that are less than a quarter of an inch in height. So think about that scale. Think about what I just told you about the environment of the cell. I'm going to show you another video. Uh, we're going to zoom into the cell and look at what's going on inside the cell. So here we're going in. This is that complex framework that I was telling you about that supports the structure of the cell. And you're going to see some of these uh, girders, if you will, just they kind of form all by themselves. Isn't it neat? Look at that. They just start to form, these girders formed by proteins. That little green guy is a protein. He comes and he can cut one of those girders in half when the cell is ready to disassemble. There's another fiber that self-assembles. So you're seeing um, a fiber assembling and then another fiber disassembling. This is a molecular protein. This guy walks along this fiber and he is hauling off trash to the outside of the cell. So that big sack that he's carrying is full of stuff that's non-useful to the cell. And so he's carrying that vesicle to the outside of the cell. If we continue to look uh, at another structure, we're going to zoom in here and this Something's going to pop out of these pores. This is the ribosome, and you're going to see this circular molecule. That's called RNA, and what it's going to do is going to read that molecule, and from that reading, it's going to make another machine. So that yellow wormy thing coming off there, that's another protein. So it just made another protein. He finds a friend. They make a new machine when they meet up together, and so those two proteins are stuck together, and they go do some things. Now we see another ribosome. It's making a new machine. It drops it through that pore. And then we're going to see this guy actually leaves part of his tail sticking out, and now he can receive signals from the outside world and transmit them to the compartment that he's in. Fascinating, yeah? That's just the tiniest bit of things. See, when I see that, I say, God demonstrates to us that he is real. And that is not opposed to faith. I remember when I was first learning this stuff, I went to one of my biochemistry teachers and said, okay, I understand protein, uh, I understand chemical bonds and protein interactions, like the forces that drive those things. But those rules only apply when proteins are, are close together. Think of it like a magnet. Like if you were to bring a magnet this far apart, nothing would happen. If you get close, they would stick together. So you get the right two proteins close enough, they want to stick together. And that's what happens with those girders. You get close enough, they want to stick together. But these girders... They seem to be kind of coming from everywhere. Like the proteins, that, like, what is, what's the force driving that? And the response was, oh, they just know where to go. <laughs> they know where to go? Are they alive? What do you, no, they just know where to go. They're not alive. There's molecules, but they know where to go. Huh. They know where to go. Interesting. They know where to go. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So I read this, and I think if David could see that video we just showed, his head might explode. <laughs> see, when I learn this stuff, the complexities of it, it just points me back to Jesus, and I'm thinking, how awesome is our creator? So let's continue down this science road for a minute and talk. And I was thinking about what to talk. So I studied proteins in grad school, and that's what I like to talk about. But I think DNA might be a safer thing. Everybody's heard of DNA, right? With all the, the TV crime dramas, you turn on CSI and Law and Order, DNA, DNA, DNA. You hear all about it. So people have at least heard about DNA. But you ever ask yourself, what is that stuff and why is it everywhere? DNA is 
it's kind of like our recipe book. It holds all of the information to make and maintain us. And there is a staggering amount of information. I should have put a picture up here, but I didn't. I forgot to put one in. So think of DNA like a stair, like a winding staircase. Everybody can think of a staircase, right? And each step just represents two chemicals sitting next to each other. And there's only four of those chemicals, A, T, C, and G. Just put letters on them. A's, T's, C's, and G's. And that's it. That's DNA. The A's and the T's always go together. The C's and the G's always go together. Those are the rules. So when I learned that, in the beginning, I thought, well, how in the world do we have such a diverse life with a four-letter alphabet? Look at your neighbor. Do you look the same? No. The reason is, is because you've got six feet, six feet of that stuff in 99.99% of your cells. So let's just, for the sake of today's discussion, say it's in every one of your cells. So every one of your cells has six feet of DNA. If you were to take a DNA molecule out, stretch it from end to end, it would be about as tall as I am. Six feet of DNA. So if you measure those little A's, T's, C's, and G's, okay, we got four of those. We measure those out in six feet. That means you got about 3.2 billion A's, T's, C's, and G's in your cell. And that, folks, is why we're so diverse. You got a lot of combinations. You got four letters, but 3.2 billion of them. There's a lot of combinations. How many combinations does that give us, Carlos? That's 10 raised to. So that means that there's 3 billion, 480 million zeros after that number. That takes about 5,000 textbooks just to write that number out. That's how many combinations the Lord has at his fingertips. Six feet of DNA in every cell, we have about 100 trillion cells. So you, one calculation estimates that we have about 12 and a half million miles, 12 and a half million miles of DNA inside of you right now. Is that fascinating? 12 and a half million miles. So when I learned this, I was like, well, how does the stuff fit in the cell, one? And if you can even get it to fit in the cell, how do you get it to copy? Remember I told you we started as one cell, one become two, two become four. And every time you make a new cell, the DNA has to copy itself because every cell has an exact complement of the DNA. So I'm going to show you another video. Let's check this video out. We're going to look at how DNA is packaged in a cell. So there's the, uh, that's just a single strand of DNA. That's kind of the spiral staircase idea. And what you're going to see is there's going to be a protein, a little molecular machine that comes down and lands on the DNA and once the protein lands on the DNA, the DNA is going to wrap itself around that protein. And then just upstream from that, another protein is going to come in, and the DNA is going to wrap itself around that again. And then just upstream, the DNA is going to wrap itself around until eventually you've got millions, billions of these little spools. And then the spools come together, and they form what looks like a thicker thread of DNA. So now we've got a, th a thicker thread of that DNA, and then what it's going to do is once again form into that familiar spiral staircase uh, shape that we talked about earlier. And if we continue to zoom out, you're going to see that yet again spirals and we get another thicker strand of DNA. This is inside of you right now. And we're going to continue to zoom out and once we zoom completely out, we see the familiar chromosome. So you get 23 from your mom, 23 from your dad. Now check this out. This is an actual cell that you're going to see, and we're going to watch it split into two. 
So the, the chromosomes line right up in the middle of the cell, and you're going to have proteins that pulls the chromosomes apart, and it pulls them right in half, and watch this. Sound effects. <laughs> Boom. Now you've got two cells. So the cells have split. Now we've got DNA in each one of these, but we've got to make more of it. So how do we do that? This is when molecular machines come into the picture again. So you've got the DNA coming in from the left-hand side of the screen. That's that spiral staircase, and it's coming into that blue machine right there. That blue machine, its job is to untwist the DNA and to unzip it right down the middle. And then once it does that, it feeds part of the DNA to this machine on the right, and it feeds the other part of the DNA to the machine on the left. The amazing thing is that blue guy, he's spinning the DNA about the speed of a jet engine. So they can really zip through six feet of DNA in a matter of seconds. So you can see that as it feeds down to the right, or yeah, to the right of your screen, it's making a new strand of DNA. And for reasons that I won't go to this morning, on the left, that strand of DNA actually has to be copied backwards. And so the machine actually lets a big loop form outside from it, and then the machine there on the left, watch it, it zips out, and then it completes the uh, copy of that strand on the top left there. That is happening inside of you right now. <laughs> is anybody amazed? Yeah. Let's see, I talk about this with my wife, and I'm just like this, and then she's like... It's extraordinarily sophisticated, extraordinarily complex, extraordinarily complex, and extraordinarily miraculous. I say that God demonstrates to us that he is real, and that, folks, that is not opposed to faith. When I was reading some stuff on DNA, I came across this article, and this one gentleman asked this question. Throw that question up for me, Carlos. He said this of DNA. He said, how can a substance so mystifyingly low-key be at the very heart of life itself. And when I read that, I smiled because it made me think of Jesus. Let's go to Luke chapter 2 verse, nine, or chapter two, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, firstborn a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So the scientist said, how can a substance so mystifyingly low-key be at the very heart of life itself? I read this passage and I ask myself, how can a baby, how can a baby entering this world in such a mystifyingly low-key manner be at the very heart of life itself. It seems backwards. It seems counterintuitive. It seems upside down. But we see these themes all throughout Scripture. Jesus told us if we wanted to be great, we'd have to be a servant. He said to find life, you must die to yourself. To get back to your enemy, love him. So I guess it's not terribly surprising that... Uh, the way we're commanded to live in Scripture is consistent with how we're wired, for lack of a better phrase. Has God ever used something seemingly small in your life to do something miraculously big and magnificently huge? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. So I could stand up here and talk to you all for days, literally days about this stuff and be just as excited about it and talking. I mean, the more I learn, the more I see, it fascinates me and it points me to Jesus. 
but my time is coming to a close. But my hope and my prayer today is that as you saw the things that maybe you haven't seen before, is that you would be in awe of the Creator. And some people ask me, eh, don't you feel like you wasted your time? You know, you went to school, got your doctorate in biochemistry, and now you're not even doing anything related to it. I think as a worship pastor, I've got a very appropriate job. As a doctor, I should be a worship pastor. Makes sense. So I worship the creator. I don't worship the cell. I don't worship the stars. I don't worship anything else, but I worship the creator. I think God has fearfully and wonderfully made you. We are the brightest, clearest mirror of his creativity. We are the brightest, clearest mirror of his creativity. And I can think of no better way to respond to what we've seen today than to respond to him in worship. Just as David did, I praise you, for I am wonderfully made. So I say, what is more natural than to worship the God who reveals himself through the exquisite molecular molecular mechanisms underlying life? I hope that today that you saw a glimpse of God that you've never done. Because what is worship? What is one of our, what is one of our, our values? We want to encounter God and we want to worship God. But what, is it, what does it mean to worship God? It's simply an appropriate response in light of who God is. And so today I hope you got a glimpse of God. Maybe a glimpse that you've never seen before. A glimpse of creativity. And I hope that it solidifies your faith with confidence. And I hope that it informs your worship as it has mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe to come into your presence, to come into the presence of, as David says, someone that measures the span of the universe in the palm of his hands, yet cares about us so much. Cares about us so much that things are, the details, the complexities of life when we look at these things, they seem so small and so impossible. But it just shows me how much you care for us, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to someone here today that maybe doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us, humble each and every person in this room, humble the scientists that are continuing to to make these discoveries and to learn about this stuff. Humble us so that we may not take a position of pride, but humble us so that we may take a position of humility, a stance of humility, and stand back in all of you and raise our hands and say, Wow. Jesus, you are truly magnificent. We thank you for making us capable. Making us capable to learn these things and to understand them, just to get a tiny, tiny, tiny glimpse of you. And I pray that what we've seen today, Lord, would increase our worship and increase our appreciation of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.